0: We're going to continue on through our series in Esther. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open that, open them there. Esther's in the Old Testament. If you flip through, you'll find Psalms rather quickly. And then Esther's just tucked in just before Psalms there. Psalms, Job, Esther. <clears throat> so Joe is in uh, Ontario. This morning with Don Smith at the Milton Bible Church where our friends Mark and Debbie Rushworth are and Joe sent me a text this morning to say hi and so he'll be preaching there uh, very soon this morning and then Joe returns with Don and Stephanie as Ben said they'll be joining us starting this week and so Don uh, has been an integral part in the growth and the direction of the church over the last few years, and so Don will be preaching next Sunday. We'll be taking a break from our Esther series, and if you've never heard Don preach, I encourage you to make it out. Uh, It's uh, more than just a listening experience. All the senses are involved, and so uh, I encourage you to come out. Don's been doing it for quite some time, and it's encouraging uh, to see him uh, his, his passion has not cooled, his message has not softened, and I always leave a Sunday morning when Don's preached, just seeing the gospel as uh, more simple than when I went in and more essential and have a greater motivation for following God. And so I encourage you to come out next Sunday to hear Don preach. That's next week. This week, as we said, we'll continue on through Esther. So if you remember, just to get us all back up to speed, uh, King Xerxes of Persia banishes his wife, Queen Vashti, from his presence. So he needs to find a new wife and queen. Uh, He gathers all the young, beautiful virgins in the whole empire. And whatever one pleases him the most will be the new queen. Esther, a Jewish orphan who's raised by her older cousin Mordecai, wins the competition and becomes the new queen. All is not happily ever after, though, because the end of Esther 2, there's a plot by two guys to kill the king. Mordecai, Esther's older cousin, uh, uncovers the plot and saves the king, but his act goes unrewarded. Instead, enter Haman, the Agagite, the miserable guy with the big ego. He hates Mordecai. He would love to be king. And I think for all those reasons, for some reason, my mind always associates him with Scar from The Lion King. (laughs) Anyway, it just does. I can't stop it. So Mordecai goes unrewarded, but Haman gets promoted to the top official in the king's court. And he's the top dog. And because Mordecai refuses to bow down to him, His first item of business as top official is to not only kill Mordecai, but to wipe out the whole Jewish race inside the Persian Empire. And so two weeks ago, Becky brought us to that pivotal moment in Esther's life, the moment of decision. Will she, as the queen of Persia, stand up and go before the king and try to put a stop to this genocide of her people, even though it means that she might perish? And the answer was, yes, she says, if I perish, I perish I'll go to the king. And then last week, Joe brought us into the first of chapter 5, looking at fear and faith with Esther inviting the king and Haman to a feast. And then at that feast, inviting them to another feast. And that's kind of where we left off with Esther buttering the king and Haman up so that at the second feast, she can bring out the news that she is indeed a Jew and that Haman had tricked the king into his decree. So we'll pick it up. At verse 9 of chapter 5, and we've got a long one again. We're going through all the way almost to the end of chapter 6, okay? And I just realized now that I forgot to put the verses on the screen. So you'll just have to stay with me, okay? <clears throat> so Haman, so this is verse 9 of chapter 5. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am inviting by her together with I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, (laughs) Say <laughs> with me. King Xerxes. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, "Hmm, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered, and Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, a very interesting verse. If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. We just pray, Father, that you would come this morning by your spirit uh, to make your word alive in our hearts. We want to be changed by it. We want to know you more. We want to know ourselves more. We want to grow and be changed and love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, (coughs) Haman leaves the first feast and he's riding pretty high until he comes across Mordecai. And this is Mordecai, we found out back in chapter 3. He refuses to bow down to Haman, he doesn't respect Haman. And there's all that long-standing stuff that we looked at a few weeks ago. And here he refuses to stand up or tremble or anything. He just basically ignores Haman altogether. And Haman cannot take it. This is like the death blow to his inflated ego. And he must do something about it. So when your ego is hurt, it's usually a good idea to gather all the people around you and let them know how awesome you are. And so Haman does that. In, uh, in verse 11, <clears throat> he gathers his wife and his friends and he lets them know, you know how, uh, how awesome his family is, how much money he has, how successful he is at work, how he's good friends with important people, and on and on he goes. And if that seems a bit weird to you that he would do that, you have to remember that Haman didn't have Facebook to do that on like we do. He has to gather people and physically do it before them. So he does that. And Haman recounts all of his greatness and all that he has from the king, the riches, the favor, the position. But then what's he say? He says, it all means nothing to me as long as Mordecai is alive. Haman is so obsessed with Mordecai, he's so infuriated at the lack of respect for Mordecai, all that he has, all that he's been given from the king means nothing to him. It's worthless if he doesn't have what he really wants, which is Mordecai dead. And so we look at this and we think, man, he has it all, he has the power, he has the position, he has all the riches, the money, the status, he has everything Just let it go, enjoy what you have, move on. But Haman can't. He can't move on. He can't enjoy the power and the position and the riches and the royal feasts. It's all as nothing to him. Proverbs 27.20 says that the eyes of man are never satisfied. It doesn't matter if he has everything in the world's eyes. If he doesn't have what he thinks he should have, He will not be happy. And so you would think that all the riches and the feasting and the favor that the king has poured on him would kind of enable him to get over this minor difficulty and not have his whole life go down the drain over something like this, but not so much. And we read that and we say, you know, we read Haman say, all of that is nothing if I don't have Mordecai dead and we can read that and say you know dude's crazy or we can read that and say man I'm a lot like Haman I'm a lot like Haman that's me because how often have we said maybe not verbally but in our hearts yes I know I've been adopted by God I know that I'm his child I know that I have a glorious inheritance I know I have favor and grace From the king, I know I have his love. I know I have an eternity of joy and riches before me, but it all means nothing if I don't have fill-in-the-blank. Haman had it all by the world's standards, but his joy was robbed over some minor difficulties. And in Christ, we have infinite joy, but what absence, what loss, what lack... What setback have we allowed to rob us of that joy? What earthly things have we allowed to overshadow the heavenly riches that are ours in Christ? What we have been given is infinitely greater than what Haman had, so, how much more tragic is it when we toss it all aside and count it as nothing? because we feel God hasn't given us what we deserve. And this is common, I think, to all of us, but in my experience, I've seen it quite a bit, and maybe it's just my my experience and what I've been involved in over the years, but I see it quite a bit in the high school and university age range that we're following God and we're praying for a certain school to get into, or a certain job, or a certain spouse. And when God doesn't deliver, we say, all of that is nothing, and walk away. And these things very quickly become the center of our relationship with God. And so our hearts begin to say, as Haman said, I know I have all this, but it says nothing to me if I don't have And so we need to ask ourselves what's the basis of our relationship with God? Is He a good Father and worthy of your following, period? Or is He a good Father and worthy of your following as long as He gives what you think you deserve? What is your heart aching for? Is it more of God or is it some earthly things? What's making us so discontent if you're discontent right now good question to ask yourself is what's making me so discontent Haman was discontent and it was because he didn't have the one thing that he wanted we have all the glorious inheritance in Christ all these wonderful songs that we sang this morning are all true for those of us who are in Christ but what's making us so discontent John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, he said this. He said, suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think of him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. But the men of this world are children. Offer a child an apple and a banknote, and he will doubtless choose the apple. So, when you feel your heart start to rise up with this emptiness, with an ache for things that you don't feel, that you don't have, that you feel you should, when the great things of God that we sang about this morning, that we know, these great uh, promises in the Bible, when those great things begin to appear, as nothing to you because you don't have some earthly good that you want. We start to long for apples and ignore the banknotes given to us by God. We need to remind ourselves that God is better, that God is enough, that He is enough, that even above the lack of some comfort or security. Or acknowledgement over the lack of a spouse or a school or a job or respect from your peers, that even above all of those things, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. It's better than life itself. He is enough. Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me. That was where Haman was at. Is that where we're at this morning? Chapter 5 ends with Haman's friends suggesting to him that he builds a gallows 75 feet high in order to hang Mordecai on it, and not only kill him, but to make a humiliating public spectacle of him. Not to get too gruesome, but a gallows in ancient Persia isn't the Wild West gallows that we think of. A gallows in ancient Persia is basically a 75-foot skewer. And so when they say hanging, it's uh, skewering. Sorry if that was too graphic. But it just shows us that a more disgraceful, disgusting form of death would be hard to find. And it shows us uh, the power of jealousy and anger and revenge and the depths that it can drive us to. So Haman gathers his guys to build the gallows. And chapter 6 opens with the king in the middle of a restless sleep. It doesn't give us the reason. It doesn't say that he was having terrible dreams from God or he was greatly troubled by the recent events in the kingdom. It could have very easily been the curry that he had for supper or Haman's crew building a 75-foot gallows outside his window. The point is, it doesn't give us any supernatural reason for why Xerxes was awake. It just says, on that night, the king could not sleep. And so we don't have the reason. It's just a common, everyday, uh, run-of-the-mill insomnia. And so he orders for some guys to come and read the chronicles of his reign. So if you think you've lived a boring life, take heart, because the only thing that Xerxes thought could put him to sleep was the reading of his own life. But in the reading of that, they come across the account of Mordecai and un- uncovering the plot to kill the king, which we read in Esther 2. And it's in the best interest for a king to always reward this type of loyalty. You really, really want assassination plots to be uncovered, and so it's always good to have an incentive for that. And so when he finds out that Mordecai has not been rewarded, he's a little uneasy, and he wants it to be corrected right away. And just then, who would walk in? Haman. He's apparently so filled with rage that he can't wait for a decent hour of the day to make his proposal about hanging Mordecai. He comes while they're reading this in the middle of the night. And what ensues is probably the most hilarious conversation in the whole Bible. And it kind of feels like it was taken from an old comedy like the Carol Burnett show or something, where two guys are talking and they think they're talking about the same thing, and they're actually talking about completely different things, and it turns out really bad for the guy who thinks it's going to go really good. And Anyway, hilarity. (laughs) So eventually it ends with Mordecai not hanging on a 75-foot gallows, but sitting on the king's horse, dressed in the king's clothes, and being led through the city by Haman, who is declaring praise on him. So, what's significant about this event? Well, first of all, it saved Mordecai's life, and we know that Esther was going to reveal it all in the second feast, but it didn't look like Mordecai was going to even make it to the second feast, right? It looked like he was going down that day. So, it saves Mordecai's life, but more than that... uh, there's something else significant about the events here in chapter six, and so Esther is written uh, in what is called a chiastic pattern, and this is the way of writing where basically the story is a mirror image of itself. So you see this A B C D C B A. It's like the story form of the word race car. Same front words, backwards. Front words, word? Yeah, sure. Front words and backwards, right? I'm not an English. Uh, major, but and I think we can take these things so far and say, you know, if you look at every word in Revelation that starts with T, you're going to know that Turkey is this and that, and we can take all those literary things a bit too far, but we're not doing that here. We're just seeing the way that Esther was written. The Bible is literature. We're not going to ignore the literary forms and the genres. We're going to use them uh, to help us, and so when you look at that, with Esther, it reveals something pretty interesting. So if you go to the next point, so you can see how Esther starts. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. Those are some highlights from the first half. And then H, G, F, E, oh, I did two E's. D, C, B, A, right? And they kind of flip on each other. And the same events are happening just kind of flipped. So if you look at, let's do D in chapter 3, we have Haman's decree that all the Jews should be killed. When we get to chapter 8, we're going to see what Mordecai's decree was. And they kind of flip on each other, all right? We have two banquets in chapter 1, and in the near the end, we're going to have two feasts by the Jews, okay? So when we see that, we can imagine that the center point the pivot point of the story is of great importance, right? Because that's what the author has set up uh, to be the turning point of the whole story. So when we read Esther, we might think, well, the turning point is probably her saying, you know, if I perish, I perish. Or the turning point might be the second feast where she's going to reveal her Jewishness and it's all going to flip around. But actually, the turning point of the whole structure of Esther, go ahead, guys, is the king could not sleep. That's what the author has set up for the whole story to flip on, okay? So we have a mirror image this way, mirror image this way, and it all flips on Esther 6.1, a king with insomnia. So why is that important? Why do we take the time to point that out? First, it's yet another reminder that there is an invisible God reigning through this story, The author makes the pivot point of the story an ordinary, commonplace, seemingly insignificant event and by doing so so is showing us that the spotlight isn't on Esther. The spotlight isn't on Mordecai. The spotlight isn't even on Xerxes. The spotlight is on a very common, seemingly insignificant event. The whole thing is about to be flipped The tables are about to be turned and there is an unseen power bringing it all about. And so we need to see the significance of this. We've seen through the series, God reigning, God reigning over kings and rulers, God reigning over compromises, uh, God reigning over suffering and hardship. And then chapter six comes and drives it home even further, not just the big events, good or bad. But God is actually reigning over mundane, ordinary, commonplace, seemingly insignificant events in our lives. He's about to deliver the whole nation of Israel from death, and the snowball starts rolling because a king just happened to have insomnia, just happened to ask for the chronicles to be read, just happened to open to the story of Mordecai. Haman just happened to walk in at that time. these simple mundane events were used by God to change Mordecai and Esther and the whole Jewish nation forever. And so the same is true of us today. Often in our own lives, God has used these mundane, ordinary events to bring big change in our lives. So when you look back over your life, you probably see some events that just seemed small and insignificant at the time, but led to big change. If you're a Christian, think about the series of events that led to your conversion. Maybe a random phone call. Maybe uh, randomly bumping into an old friend. Maybe you're flipping through channels on the TV or the radio. Random, seemingly insignificant events at the time, but led to big, big change in your life. So the world is not just matter in motion. God didn't wind the world up in Genesis 1. And let it go. He is at work. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. In Ephesians 1.11, Paul says that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. All things. When we read that, I don't think we should just skim over it quickly. God works how many things? All things according to the counsel of His will. So, we need to let that sink in because if we're honest, with all of our stress on freedom and liberty and choice and all of those things, hearing that God works all things and that every decision is from God kind of grinds against us. We think, how can that be? After all, if I want to make a decision, I'll make a decision. If I want to stand on the chair, Don will do this next week, so I'll brace you. There we go. I stand on the chair. If I want to move to Mongolia, I will move to Mongolia. I can make decisions. I am not a robot. I don't have a program downloaded into me making these decisions. I can do it, right? Which is true. We are not dolls in God's dollhouse. We have different temperaments and desires. We can make decisions, and we are responsible for those decisions. But the Bible makes it clear that ultimately God is in control and He reigns and He works in such a way that our freedom and responsibility are not compromised and we act according to our temperament and our desires, but the end result is precisely what He had intended from the beginning. Such is the majesty of the sovereignty of God. So Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13 he says continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to fulfill his good purpose so he says work for God is working in you to will and to act and so Paul am I working or is God working if God's working why do I have to work yes So when we see this, when we see a sovereign God who works all things according to the counsel of His will, who works even the smallest events of our lives, when we understand this, it doesn't box us in. It doesn't make us robots. It doesn't make us fatalists who lose all ambition and motivation. Instead, it actually frees us and propels us forward. Understanding that God reigns even over all the unimportant, insignificant, mundane events in my life changes everything. First, when I look back over my life, it causes more thankfulness and praise to God. So when we look at past events of our life, it's not just look at all these coincidence and these chance meetings and accidents that got me to where I am today. No. It's look at how my sovereign, loving Father worked in my life bringing significance to out of insignificance. So I thank God that in my own life, when I was 18 and drifting fairly far from God, I went to visit my friend Nathan. He was playing some music by a band called Project 86. You can look them up if you want. It'll be fun for you. And I was drifting far from God. He was playing that music. I was like, what is this? And he was telling me about them, and I was like, wow, they're... They're, they believe in God and they're not Michael W. Smith. That's interesting. And so from there, God started a snowball that would actually end up bringing me back to Him. So, a seemingly insignificant event, He played that music at that time when I went to visit Him. And God really, when I look over my life, that began, that was my night of uh, my sleepless night that God used to start to bring me back to Him. And so when I look over my life, I say, that's another thing I can add in to thankfulness to God. And looking ahead, seeing that God can use even a sleepless night to accomplish His purposes, gives my life a greater depth, greater meaning, greater significance, greater importance. It's like the life, the movie of your life goes from 1940s black and white to vivid color IMAX 3D. We now live differently because God is at work in all things. So what are you doing here, God? Am I just at the superstore to buy groceries? Or are you up to something? We now approach life differently. We approach every day by faith expecting divine appointments. By faith we can see even the mundane things of our life as significant and important driving to the store picking up kids from school making supper bumping into an old friend a short conversation with the cashier at costco mondays even mondays god can use in his purposes there are not insignificant events when we believe that god reigns they are new opportunities for god to work So really, we've looked at at two, two people, really. We've looked at the people that are feeling a bit too much like Haman than they'd like, where they know that they have the glorious inheritance in Christ, but their heart is discontent. Their heart is aching. They've counting, they're counting those things as nothing because they do not have the one thing, some earthly thing, That they want. And we've looked at uh, people who might feel like their life is insignificant, that God isn't working in their life. They haven't had any big events, good or bad. Things just seem to be rolling along. God can use your sleepless nights for his glory. So if this morning you feel like your life has become all wrapped up, and centered on something that's missing, we do need to see a majestic God. First of all, if you're not a Christian, the feeling is real. Something is missing. And it can only be filled with Jesus. There are holes that can only be filled with Jesus. You will never find a job that pays enough. You will never find a relationship close enough. You will never find a drink strong enough. You will never find an image exciting enough. You will never find entertainment captivating enough, it will not work. There's only one thing that can fill that ache, and that's a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you are a Christian, but you've got off track a bit, and you feel yourself, even when you walked in this morning, saying, I know we're going to sing all these songs, and oh, how deep the Father's love, and all that stuff, and it's fine to sing it on a Sunday morning, but maybe at work on Monday, or at home this afternoon, it all becomes as nothing because you don't have X, Y, or Z. And so in effect, we've spit on our salvation and the deep love of the Father. And our cry of our heart this morning needs to be, I fix my eyes on things above and not on things of this earth. I've, I've tossed aside all your good gifts, Father, and so I need again Your greatest gift, which is Your Holy Spirit, to transform my heart and, and, and restore to me the joy of my salvation. We can't be walking to the city grumbling that our carriage is broken. Or maybe this morning it's not that ache Maybe it's that your life just feels like that long line of unimportant, insignificant events, like a big truckload of mundane backed up and just dumped in your life. And you need to see this morning, you need to see a sovereign God who is even using those seemingly insignificant events for His purpose, and know this morning that your life does have meaning. It is significant. It does have depth and importance. And then walk in that new faith with an expectation that God is at work. Just draw your attention back to that last verse that we read, verse 13. Just the curious advice of uh, Haman's wife and his wise men. And they say, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And so even though they don't say why Haman will fall, they don't mention God or anything like that, the sense is, is that they're beginning to see. They're beginning to see that these things aren't just chance. They aren't just coincidences. Something, someone is on the move and that someone is beyond them. It's beyond Haman. Haman does not compare to them. Someone who reigns and rules supreme. Someone whose plans cannot be thwarted. Someone who works all things together for the counsel of His will. Someone who works all things together for good, for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And that's who we need to see as well. We need to see a majestic, beautiful, glorious God. If our heart's aching for things that are missing, we need to fix our eyes on Him. If we feel like our life is insignificant and unimportant, we need to fix our eyes on Him. This morning, while Aaron was sharing his tongue before John gave the interpretation, Karen had a bit of a picture of, of a lot of hopelessness in the room and a strong wind of the Spirit blowing the hopelessness out the doors and a soft breeze of hope blowing in. And so this morning, if you've got hopelessness that those holes can be filled, God wants you to know the holes can be filled. He wants to blow that hopelessness out of dissatisfaction and discontent and He wants to blow in the peace and the joy of His Holy Spirit. If you've got hopelessness that your life is insignificant, that your life is unimportant, that your life does not matter, it does not care. He wants to blow that out by His Holy Spirit. He wants to blow in that He is working all things to the counsel of His will, that your life does have significance. It does have importance. He's a good, good Father. And those things aren't going to, be, aren't going to come by looking to earthly things. They're going to come by fixing our eyes on Jesus what we need is more of him the ache in your heart isn't going to be filled by more earthly things it's going to come by more of God more of his Holy Spirit so father we just thank you that you are a good good father that you love us more than we can imagine you love us more than we deserve we thank you and we praise you for all that we have in Christ. We thank you for our glorious inheritance. We thank you that you saved us and redeemed us through the death of your Son. We thank you for not leaving us as orphans, but filling us with your Spirit. We thank you that there is fullness of joy in your presence, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This life will be over in a second, and then it's with you for eternity, enjoying that glorious inheritance. So we'll We just say forgive us, Father, for grumbling and complaining about our broken carriages as we're on our way to the city of our inheritance. And we just pray that You would fill us again by Your Spirit, that we'd enjoy Your good gifts that You've given us uh, through Your Spirit. So we pray You'd come and transform us. We pray that anyone here who's feeling that ache and that desire for earthly things, uh, that You'd come this morning by Your Spirit and You would... Uh, be true to Your Word, that You would uh, fill those holes, that You would fill them with life and joy, uh, that out of them would flow rivers of living water. We pray that for them this morning, that You come by Your Spirit and do that for those of us who have uh, gotten off. We pray again that You would give us Your greatest gift, the Holy Spirit, to transform us, restore to us the joy of our salvation this morning. And we pray, Father, for anyone whose life is feeling insignificant or unimportant that You just show them who You are and how You're a great God and a good Father and You're watching over them. We pray they would run to You this morning and find their significance, find their importance in a sovereign God who works all things to the counsel of His will. We praise You. We praise Your name. Amen.